You're listening. You're listening to. You're listening to. You're listening to the Learning Futures. The Learning Futures. The Learning Futures podcast. Welcome to the Learning Futures Podcast, one of the first episodes of Season 5. Uh, with me today is our co-host, Dr. Punya Mishra. And Punya, how excited are you today to kick off this new season of Learning Futures? Oh, I am super thrilled. I am super and- thrilled. Sorry, I thought I was muted there. We're always kind of somewhat muted, I swear. Everyone covering yeah. their, their fingers over the space bar. <laughs> All right. No, I, I am super excited um, to start this next season off. Uh, particularly because we are sort of focusing on the Learning Futures Collaboratives. And I think the kickoff with our guest today around issues of AI and education are increasingly things that are part of the broader sort of popular conversation now. So I can't think of a more appropriate uh, start to season five. Yeah, excellent. And so um, so today's episode, if you can't guess by um, Punya's commentary, is we're focusing on artificial intelligence, um, but we're specifically focusing on, on artificial intelligence and education. Um, and we've been fortunate today to have some wonderful colleagues answer our call to come talk with us and share their thoughts and expertise around this rapidly evolving field of artificial intelligence, machine learning, and those implications it might have for education. Um, and so with that, let me take a moment to go around the virtual production studio here and introduce our guests. Um, first, I'd like to introduce one of our colleagues here from, from ASU, Dr. Scotty Craig. Uh, Scotty is an associate professor of human systems engineering within the Polytechnic School of the Ira Fulton Schools of Engineering here at ASU. And he's been, uh, he describes himself as a learning engineer and has been investigating research areas of emotion and learning, multimedia learning, and intelligent tutoring systems, both in laboratory and applied classroom settings. And Scotty is also one of our fellow members in our AI for Education in the Learning Futures Collaboratives that Puni just mentioned. Um, so welcome, Scotty, and also a big warm thank you for uh, bringing the connection for our next guest. Uh, thank you, Sean, and thank you for welcoming me here. Happy to be here. Yes. And so with that, we are, the three of us, I can speak on behalf, we are absolutely thrilled to be joined today by Dr. Ryan Baker, who is a professor of education and computer science at the University of Pennsylvania and also directs the Penn Center for Learning Analytics. Dr. Baker researches how students use and learn from educational games, intelligent tutors, and other kinds of educational software. Drawing on the fields of educational data mining, learning analytics, and human-computer interaction, he develops methods for mining the data that come out of those interactions between students in educational software. He then uses this information to improve our understanding of how students respond to educational software and how these responses influence their learning. Welcome, Dr. Baker. We are thrilled to have you on the podcast and to get your insights into AI and education. Thank you very much for having me. I'm delayed to have the opportunity to speak to y'all and also to your audience. Yes, wonderful. And we have a very broad audience. And so I thought maybe it might be helpful to, as we've kind of been kicking around this term of, of AI and things like that, to just kind of briefly sort of introduce this topic um, today. So Artificial intelligence, or AI, is the term that it's been rapidly rising in popularity across all sectors, big tech, big business, big money, uh, government, policy, um, and of course, education. And so while our conversation today will probably wander uh, all over this large umbrella um, category of AI and its implications, our focus will be a little bit more specifically on the potential impacts of AI on education. And so for our listeners 
um, who may not already be dialed in to some of the latest news and updates around AI and education. Just as an example, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, or otherwise most commonly known as UNESCO, has been publishing a lot of resources and goals aimed at AI and education, including a recent consensus on AI and education from Beijing back in 2019, and a series of, of international forums, the most recent of which just took place the first week here of December. And they've put out this, this statement on this website, and this is, a, this is a direct quote from the UNESCO site, that artificial intelligence has the potential to address some of the biggest challenges in education today, innovating teaching and learning practices, and accelerate programs towards the sustainable development goals. However, rapid technological developments inevitably bring multiple risks and challenges, which have so far outpaced policy debates and regulatory frameworks. UNESCO is committed to supporting member states to harness the potential of AI technologies for achieving the Educational 2030 Agenda, while ensuring that its applications in educational context is guided by the core principles of inclusion and equity. And so that's basically a long-winded way of saying that AI has reached a state where even UNESCO is really working hard to producing lots of content um, and guidelines and frameworks and policy discussions around how we should be incorporating technology like AI into places like education. So with that, I'd like to now turn uh, to our special guest, uh, Dr. Baker. And again, thank you for joining us. Perhaps you could take a moment and just tell us a little bit about yourself and the work that you've been doing. And then we'll then we'll jump in and start grilling you with all kinds of questions, I think. <laughs> sure. Well, um, so I, I kind of want to talk about what you just said, but, uh, sure. but I'll, I'll, yeah, I'll go ahead first. Um, so I'm a professor at uh, University of Pennsylvania, and I've been involved in, you know, the area of artificial intelligence and education that's called educational data mining or learning analytics since before those were terms, um, which at this point goes along with my gray hair. Um, so I've been very interested in the potential from the beginning of my career in what, what AI-based methods can do to tell us more about a student uh, so that the adaptive learning system can adapt better, so that the um, teacher can be better informed or other school personnel, and uh, so that learning engineers uh, like Scotty and on Alternating Wednesdays, me, can make better decisions about how to engineer learning with better information. And I've uh, been involved in a lot of projects over the years, as you mentioned in that intro. But, you know, among some of the more notable ones invo uh, include um, the collection of a longitudinal data set, the assessments longitudinal data set that tracks students from their use of a blended learning platform in middle school, all the way to their first job after college and several steps in between. Um, my work with Bright Bites, uh, where we've developed um, at-risk prediction algorithms that tell school leaders and teachers not just which kids are at risk of dropping out, but why. The adaptive learning within inkits that can tell a lot about a student's inquiry strategies and help support them. Um, and several other projects as well. Uh, so I've been, I've had the pleasure and the honor of being involved in a lot of projects over the years um, that kind of give me a sense of where things are going and boy, they're moving fast. Yeah, absolutely. And so um, let me let me start by just asking this question too. I think it was kind of a help orient, speaking of moving fast, right? What are your thoughts on, if we think about like in terms of maturity and capability, where generally would you say we are right now with AI and education? You know, have we seen these major advancements or elements that indicate we're really seeing this 
massive progression forward for either from a technical perspective or even like a pedagogical perspective? Like how, you know, where, where would you say we are with technology on a scale of, uh, nowhere to AIs taking over the world, sort of existential sci-fi, you know, we, you know, I am robot situation. Where, where are we on the scale here? It's really hard to answer that because in some ways we've made it an amazing distance and in some ways we haven't made it anywhere at all, just about. And on the, we've made an amazing distance, exemplary AI-based learning systems like Cognitive Tutor or Alex, like lead to learning outcomes that are way better than traditional uh, instruction. Um, and they're comparable to what a human tutor can do. These systems are able to better optimize student time and some of the ones that are in the lab, as opposed to kind of in wide usage, can adapt to students' affect, their emotion and context, um, their engagement, their metacognition, their self-regulated learning skill, and so on. So, I mean, in a certain sense, the technology, AI-based educational technology is here, and it works, and it's good. And the fact that it isn't in every single classroom in the United States and, frankly, around the world has more to do with economic factors and uh, social factors and adoption than it does with the technologies because the technologies are there. But now on the other side, I think we've only scratched the very beginnings of the surface because right now the technology is available at scale largely. And I, I said this in a paper like several years ago, and it's still true. Six years ago, I wrote the paper, Stupid Tutoring Systems, Intelligent Humans. And that paper, I said that the ones that work at scale only get one thing right. And I think that's still true. Um, the, we're still amazing distance away from the, from the vision of a system that can adapt to a learner and support the teacher in a multidimensional fashion, you know, at scale across an entire year, dealing with students' emotion, their motivation, their engagement, their uh, cognition, their metacognition, their self-regulated learning. And um, that is itself only a step on the way to, I think, an educational future like you see in Neil Stevenson's work, Diamond Age, a system that can kind of do all those things, play a major role in a learner's life, and adapt to any new content in real time. And I think that, that I was a, much more skeptic about those things a year ago than I am today, because I think AI in general and the broader technology, I think 2022 is going to be the year that people talk about where this technology took the big leap forward. Um, I really do. Thank you, Ryan. Indian, and absolutely two points I think that stand out for me. One is I think 2022 is the year, whether we look at stable diffusion or DALI or we look at chat GPT-3, it is in the popular consciousness in a way that almost to me, and I'm showing my age here, reminiscent of when the web first came along and you're like, oh my God, I can build a server sitting on my machine that anybody in the world can access. That, that level, I think, is amazing. But I want to move a little bit, Scott, to you uh, from the perspective of learning engineering. Uh, what do you, you know, uh, see, particularly given that we are at ASU, where Michael Crow is a huge fan of the the book that you mentioned, uh, the Diamond Age, and he often sort of talks about it in in his uh, talks and so on. So I don't know, Scotty, what your sort of thoughts are, sort of building on what Ryan just shared. Yeah. So as far as, um, well, there's two things to actually say with this. One is, as far as what Ryan was saying, as far as AI um, and the building of AI, I think we're really seeing um, two forms of AI um, right now. There's a lot of the AI um, stuff, such as the, the systems that you mentioned, Punya, um, that are in the math culture. 
Um, these are being developed and have been developed by you know companies. Um, they can, they may have huge, massive impact on education. Uh, as we know, they're there to and people can use them to actually start building and improving their writing. Um, they're not all guided by actual educational theory. Um, and a lot of the systems that Ryan was um, was talking about, and a lot of the work that he's done and that we've done in this area, are actually AI systems that's also guided hand in hand by learning theory. And I believe that these systems are actually the ones that have the most potential for impact, um, for really good impact. For these other systems um, that have been released, who knows? Um, we'll see what impact they have in the future. But as far as like, you know, as far as here at ASU and especially the idea of like learning engineering here at ASU, we're really starting to build learning engineering. We have a new institute that will be starting up um, soon um, on learning engineering where we'll be actually looking at and trying to build partnerships to improve and look at how we, how we can improve adult education and K-12 education by incorporating a lot of these technology and um, learning analytics, which we can ask Ryan more about. I apologize, Scotty. I didn't hear anything you said. It broke. It's like the connection died right as you started speaking. <laughs> That's probably for the best. Um, <laughs> the technology uh, shuts him off. Yeah, yes. Um, unfortunately, let me keep talking for everybody else. Um, now, actually, I was just making a distinction between the um, the AI type systems that Punya were talking about. This becoming popular in the mass, pop, mass culture versus the type of AI systems that you were talking about that we've looked at that are more guided by actual learning theory. Uh, and those will have more impact, can have more impact in the classroom. And we don't know what type of impacts these other systems are going to have, but they could also potentially come in. So, Scotty, I'm going to push, uh, sorry, Ryan, I'm going to push a little bit on that one because one of the things that we have seen with EdTech is that those tools which are freely available are the ones that get used. So for instance, yes. Microsoft Excel is not pedagogically designed to teach math or whatever, but guess what? Those are the tools that we use because they're around and they're free for teachers to use. So I think that we might actually see more of the incorporation of these sort of openly freely available kinds of tools than necessarily the ones which have been designed more purposefully, which I think is not a good thing. I, I I wish that we would have more purposefully designed tools, but I worry that the sort of the the way these works out, if history is any indication, uh, might not be the way that we would like it to be. No, and I agree with that. I think that they are going to have that kind of they are going to have a strong impact because they're going to be available. And I think that we really need to start thinking about and start to get ahead of how we can use them and how we can incorporate them to encourage and improve pedagogy. Um, as opposed to having them kind of take over as a more disruptive factor. I actually think that um, that GPT in its latest incarnation and the things coming from it, I actually think it's going to be as big an impact as the calculator. I think it's going to make it possible for students. It's going to change what it means to write in a lot of ways, the same way that the calculator changed what it meant to do math. Um, writing is going to become, I think, more a process of revision and prompt engineering and figuring out how to make things. And it's going to require a whole new set of literacies. I also guess I think that chat GPT and things that look like it are like programming. The act of programming is going to change. Programming classes are going to change. Um, foreign language learning, I suspect, will change. I actually, I, I don't think I have any idea how things are going to change entirely. I don't have a deep understanding, but I actually think that this is as big a deal as the calculator. 
Yeah. I, I mean, I would, I would, I would a hundred percent, um, agree with that. In fact, I mean, it's really interesting. So looking at, and we'll put, again, we'll, I'll put the, we'll put the links to this in the show notes. So people who are listening, if you not, not know what we're talking about when we say chat GPT and all that kind of stuff, what we're talking about, but essentially this is a, uh, you know, artificial intelligence, um, system. It's, if I'm not mistaken, it's built off of a, of a GAN, a general adversarial network type of artificial intelligence system. But the idea is it's a web-based uh, access. So users can sign up for an account and you can start feeding this machine prompts or questions um, and get a lot of these uh, and have it do these automated responses in next to real time, which is really interesting to watch. Um, in fact, I think I had it, I had it create a rap song about ugly Christmas sweaters and it did it lot, you know, it's amazing to see what it spits out in like one second, but kind of going to that point, right? So and Puni, I think it's kind of kind of merges in with what you were talking too about this and and Scotty as well, where you see these divergent kind of pathways of you have some of these really popular um sort of gaining mainstream notability in some of these AI systems like chat GPT um and things like that. But one of the questions I have with that is so like, you know, Ryan, as you were mentioning, that would could be as big as a calculator, right? Like changing the way we write, changing the way that we go around those things and kind of tying this to some of the work that you have been doing. Um, I'd, I'd like to get your comments on a couple of things. One would be, you know, how do you see something like chat GPT or whatever is going to be built next on GP, you know, GTB three or four or whatever is next, right? Um, what is it doing? Like if you're work or the work that we've been doing, looking at like measuring students affect and motivation or their metacognitive behaviors and using the data that they're interacting with these systems, how does working with or using or steering an AI like chat GPT, how will that impact what we're able to like, how does that impact downstream? Like if we're, if students are using something or learners are using a system like chat GPT or something similar in the future, how will that change how, what we're able to learn from that student and how they're learning in those systems? Because as you had mentioned before, you know, we can see kind of the emotional states and how those are changing and what are those kind of aspects. Um, and I think up until now, you could say those were being input directly by the person, but what if those inputs are now coming from a AI system instead? What, what kind of implications would that have? Well, I mean, I guess I would say that... Um that ultimately it's actually, I don't think the path, the future is that people are going to be typing queries into chat GPT to do these things. I think we're actually going to end up embedding large language models more directly into the learning tools people use. And so we'll still be able to, if that happens, to capture the interaction. Um, and by the way, it's worth mentioning, large language models have already been become part of di educational diagnosis in cutting edge work. My, my center and a lot of other folks Andrew Land, Neil Heffernan, lots of folks um, have been already using these in detection that's better than previous generation detection and easier to build. So I think that we're going to be seeing it on both sides. Students will be interacting with these kind of tools, hopefully in environments that we can um, get some log data from. If it ends up being things, you can't get log data from Excel. If it ends up being things more directly like Excel, like end user things where there's no thought to the education, then yeah, we'll be in another situation of having trouble getting at the data, but to the extent that we embed, the, the, the next generation of AI and education learning systems embed these technologies more directly, it'll be exactly where we were, just with different interactions and uh, and better tools for analyzing it. 
Yes. One other thing I think that we need to think about with um, kind of in this whole area um, is that so as people start using these systems more often, um, especially like say if we're moving them to classrooms and people are actually using them to start writing their first drafts and everything. Within the human factors area, um, so researchers like um, John Lee and um, Aaron Chu, um, actually one of one of my colleagues here at ASU, have done research looking at over-reliance on automation um, and that people start to trust and they over-trust the system. So basically, and what that means for the systems that we're starting to talk about here is that when they get that first writing prompt, they give them the prompt, they get the first writing, they're going to skim it. They're going to be more likely to have biases that say, that's good enough. That's perfect. That's exactly what I want. And I think that's what we're seeing with a lot of people who are so impressed with what they get back. Right now, it's an example of this over-reliance. I love that. I think uh, I'm seeing that with this new car. I just got a Tesla and I'm slowly seeing myself giving up control and trusting it more than maybe I should. (laughs) So Ryan, I think you had a comment that you wanted to put in there. Oh yeah, I totally agree. People tend to treat AI technologies as either perfect or worthless. And that's true (laughs) in education, it's true in lots of areas. And, you know, ChatGPT is incredibly fluent, but it'll also tell you something that's just flat wrong. And it'll make up citations if you let it. Galactica was even worse at that. So really great point, Scotty. Thank you. Yeah, so I had it actually write a movie review of an academic text that I had written. And it came up with, and I said, emphasize the visual special effects. And it wrote this rubbish review of a non-existent movie, but did a pretty good job of it. So that was a point well taken. So Ryan, I want to move into something that I was was browsing your website and looking at your work before this conversation, uh, particularly around this work of sort of parsing student behaviors in MOOCs and other environments, which is sort of the raw data that, that, sort of we that the the analytic or the AI system is using. And one uh, term caught my eye, and I had never, rarely ever seen that in an academic paper, uh, what you call WTF student behaviors, and I could not but help uh, ask that question. So I will broaden it a little bit uh, in the sense of uh, what have you learned so far about classifying behaviors and, 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 of course, what do you mean by the WTF behaviors? Because I'm Super curious to uh, see how that is categorized. Students are remarkably creative in the different ways they respond to learning technologies. They uh, game the system, trying to get through that learning by tricking the software. They uh, make careless, silly errors. They develop new strategies on a more positive note. Um, And uh, they engage in what we called in one paper WTF behaviors, which stands for without thinking fastidiously. (laughs) <laughs> oh really okay that's a good one I ryan know. i had my finger over the bleep button just in case it's behavior <laughs> that you see it and you go wtf and um that th- that range that rich range of behavior is something that uh we've been able to develop models to detect a lot of it and we've been able to build learning systems that can respond to it um i think that uh that one of my dreams is so far those models have been very system specific. Uh, in fact, I only know of one such model that actually has generalized between systems. It's uh, Luke Paquette at the University of Illinois developed a model of gaming a system that works for both uh, cognitive tutor and assistants. But in general, that's been incredibly hard and his work to do that was very laborious. I actually think his work to do that, which involves studying the thinking processes of human coders as they recognized it, 
is kind of the key. We have to get the process. And to bring this all back around, it's my hope that models like ChatGPT, not ChatGPT itself, obviously, but models, when we get enough data on human behavior with technologies to kind of start to get a, call it, you know, behavior model, like a a large behavior model, that it'll start to be able to simulate uh, those behaviors just like it can simulate language now. And that full span of behaviors it can simulate may make it possible to finally develop models of learner behavior that are general across different contexts and environments, which would be so cool. Thank you. I I love the the expansion. That was good. I actually have a follow-up question um, real fast with Ryan. Um, Because in in the last thing you were talking about, you did discuss you threw out a few terms like gaming the system which is actually a really great term i love it i know exactly what you're talking about um but i'm not sure if like if you could talk a little bit more about the background of the gaming the system environment and a little bit more what it is because the listeners might actually be more interested absolutely so gaming the system is one of those behaviors that manifests in different ways in different learning environments like the overall goal is the student is trying to succeed in the environment without having to learn the material or do it in the intentional fashion. And that's included behaviors over the years, uh, such as, for example, in systems that have multi-step hints that give the hint at the end, student goes through the hints, click, 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 types in the, gets the answer, types in the answer, click, 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 gets the answer, types in the answer, and does that over and over. Or it might involve systematic guessing. In systems where it just tells you if you're right or wrong, I saw one student, I hovered behind a student once while they typed one, two, three, four, five, six, all the way to 35, which was the correct answer. There's other contingent behaviors as well. Like anytime you set up some way for students to kind of get, that students could possibly find a way to get through without learning, some students are going to do it. And it's not actually, most students never do it in what our data that we've observed. Um, a small number of students do it a lot. And it doesn't actually occur that much. But those students that, uh, that do it a lot tend to have much worse outcomes in the long term. Gaming the system in middle school math is associated with lower learning in a lot of studies, but perhaps more saliently is associated in the assessment's longitudinal data set with doing worse in the standardized exam, being less likely to take a step, uh, it's a math, gaming system in a math learning environment in middle school, less likely to take math, higher math courses in high school, less likely to go to college, less likely to go to selective college, less likely to major in STEM in college, and less likely to have a STEM job after college. So we've seen I think now 11-year longitudinal correlations to a gaming system when you're like 11 years old, half your life later. Um, yeah, that's why I wanted to give you a chance to talk about it because that's it's a fun concept, but it's also a very important concept. So thank you for that explanation. Thank you, Scotty. Now, next kind of follow-up question. Um, we've kind of been skirting around this a little bit. Um, so one of the things that we've been discussing as our, uh, as our group is the idea that there are algorithmic biases that can be built into these AI systems. Um, This is something um, these systems are kind of prone to, mainly because, I mean, they've been trained on this unbiased data that we give it. Um, So could you talk a little bit more about that and talk about specifically like some of the challenges, pitfalls, opportunities that we have there to start addressing biases that come from our algorithms? Scotty, I'm really pleased you asked me that, particularly because I should have talked about that when I introduced myself earlier. I think the, my paper maybe that I'm most proud of uh, in the last couple of years is um, Aaron Hahn and I did a, um, a review on the published literature, the evidence for algorithmic bias in education. And we found that there's a lot of it. 
And um, there's a lot of different learning systems that are less effective, for example, for students, you know, um, in historically underrepresented racial or ethnic groups. Um, but it goes beyond just that. Different algorithms for different um, purposes. And algorithmic bias in education has been documenting everything from models that assess student linguistic competence to models predicting uh, high school dropout to models uh, assessing student emotion. But even beyond race and the fairly complex, actually, algorithmic biases in gender, where sometimes uh, algorithms are heavily biased against women, but sometimes they're heavily biased against men. There's also evidence for a long tail of algorithmic bias where, for example, students in rural areas appear to experience algorithmic bias in education. Students who have parents in the military tend to experience algorithmic bias in education. Uh, students with disabilities, students who are linguistic, you know, don't, um, are not fluent in the local language. There's so many places it manifests and we don't have a good sense as a field of all the places it manifests because a lot of these things I mentioned, there's just one study. We really need the field to really get to the heart of when algorithmic bias is occurring. But there's a piece of good news at the end of all of this, which is actually that fixing algorithmic bias isn't the hardest thing ever. Actually, if you just, there's, there's been knowledge in the field for a few years of how you can fix these problems. The key, the hard part really is determining who's being hurt and not not fixing it once you find it. So that's really good news and really key to creating educational technologies that don't reinforce or worsen bias. So uh, Brian, could you give us a couple of examples? Because I think sometimes, you know, I mean, we've I've read about, for instance, you know, algorithmic bias in sentencing systems in the criminal justice system, right? So what are some examples of algorithmic bias that in your research you could identify uh, that affect, let's say, you know, by gender or by race or, you know, SES or whatever it may be. Um, could you give us some examples to make it a little more concrete in my mind about what exactly are we talking about? Sure. And I'll also add that that um, for those who want to really dig into this topic later, there's not just the review that Aaron and I wrote, but also the Penn Center for Learning Analytics has a public open wiki on the evidence for algorithmic bias in education, which hopefully a link can go out with this uh, this podcast. But yeah, absolutely. For, for example... You, there's been cases where algorithms uh, that are trying to predict whether a student's going to drop out of uh, out of college systematically overestimate the uh, risk for some racial groups and underestimate it for others. And so I think in one of the examples, for example, students who were um, Latinx were being underpredicted to be at risk, which means that they're not going to get the support and help they need. Um, another example would be that sometimes models are simply just not effective. For specific groups, for example, um, a lot of the models on adapt from adaptive learning systems, from artificial intelligence and education systems uh, for teaching in K twelve are developed using convenience populations, typically in urban or suburban areas. And uh, Okumpa et al. twenty fourteen found that when you took those models and applied them, if they'd been built on urban suburban kids, you applied them to rural kids, that actually the models just performed basically at chance. And so there. You've got a case where like the like a, an adaptive learning system is making adaptation um, and providing information to teachers on a model that potentially could just be junk. So those are a couple such examples. It's it's not, you know, in some ways it's not quite as drastic looking as prison sentences being higher for people in some races than others. But the idea that somebody in a historically underrepresented group is going to get a model that's at chance or that is much less likely to say that they're at risk than other students is a huge problem in its own right. 
Absolutely. No, thank you for those examples. I think that helps me and I think the listeners of the podcast understand the implications of what these models can get wrong. Uh, and as you described, I mean, the consequences of it can last for years and years if if we don't get it right. So thank you. Yeah, I would I would follow that to ask a question I mean, to everybody here, um, not specifically just pinning Ryan down. Um, but so kind of going back also to this idea of, you know, we have different uh, AI systems gaining generalized popularity, right? I mean, even things, I forget what's the, the, the name of the new, uh, what's this new app that was just called Lenza or whatever that's using, I think it's using stable diffusion. I mean, it's even getting to social media profiles, right? Um, but Notice, noting that, right, that we have these different sources of where some of these things are coming from. We have, just as you were mentioning, the conversation around, um, you know, biases and data sets and training models and all of these kind of things. And, and I'll come back also to UNESCO. They're one, but there's lots of government, you know, lots of agencies that are kind of calling for the same thing. Um, people, you know, things like the World Economic Forum with areas of like the Fourth Industrial Revolution, calling for with AI as one among many other things. A question that I would have around, again, coming back to this idea of where these different systems are coming from and the the issues that have already been kind of noted just in this conversation here already around bias in, um, you know, the algorithmic bias, whether that be in the training models, et cetera, um, is how do we sort of handle or go along with this idea? And I think UNESCO is, among others, have called for future developments of AI to specifically be human-centered or taking a human-centered approach. And I'm just be curious to ask this to, to everybody. So Ryan, not just to you, but, you know, Punya and Scotty as well. Um, you know, thoughts around this approach, knowing that um, we're trying to battle in many ways these current inequities around access. And like you said, it could be in the structure, the, the, in the baked-in biases that already exist, but also just in access to the technology, to the information, to the funding. I mean, we know advances in technology are not distributed equally. And I'm just kind of curious, like, wh what are your thoughts about this issue of, and how do we work towards and hold accountable those we can to making these systems with a human-centered approach that ultimately, hopefully, right, is giving more agency to all of us in the future and not trying to take it away. Um, and, you know, I, this is kind of a pessimistic um, part here too, but like, is there hope that we can reach this promise of AI for all? Curious what the panel's thoughts are around this, this pursuit of human-centered approach and how do, we, how do we do this? That's how you kill a podcast, right there. there you go. Yeah, it's yeah. like it's like nobody knows who to nobody knows who to talk first. Um, yeah. Ryan, um, are you still with us? If so, would you like to talk first? I'm happy to. Um, so, I mean, I think I don't think we can get to something that's perfect, but I don't think that what we have right now is perfect either. I think that there are huge inequities in our current educational systems and society, and I think our goal has to be <clears throat> to roll those back and make it better, one thing at a time. One learning system at a time, one learning interaction at a time, and one group of disadvantaged learners at a time. Um, so to my mind, our first goal should be that we don't do worse than the existing systems. <laughs> and once we can get to that point, over time, we need to figure out, you know, which are the groups. We need to do lots of empirical research, uh, whether it's, you know, human dr driven or automated in some fashion, where we identify all the different groups of learners that could be uh, impacted and one by one we uh, determine whether they're being impacted and we fix it. 
And I think if we do that one group at a time, one learning system at a time, one problem at a time, why eventually we'll get to a world where there's a lot less bias in education than we have today. So um, if I can jump in here. So there are a couple of thoughts on this. So one is, you know, when Daly and Stable Diffusion and Midjourney and all came out, what was interesting is that it was immediately accessible to everybody in the world. And what I'm reminded of from there is if you go back and look at Africa and Bangladesh, let's say 30 years ago, uh, the infrastructure for landlines and telephones was a huge investment, but they actually jumped right over that and went to cell phones, right? So mobile phones now are available everywhere. In fact, more people have access to mobile phones today than they have to clean drinking water and toilets, according to uh, again the, 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 the UNESCO, to, to UNESCO. So I think what some of these tools in their accessibility and the availability of sort of cheap data plans and so on have done is really made them accessible at a, a, in a manner which was not possible even, let's say, 20 years ago. So, so I see a lot of sort of creativity coming out of like kids in India doing like amazing things with like Delhi, you know, uh, which till uh, what, six months ago or a year ago was accessible only to a small group of researchers in one institution or a couple of institutions and organizations. So I think that level of penetration and the move, that's a huge positive. The flip side of it, though, is that the people who are designing the systems, you know, we live in a post-colonial world where people who are designing the systems have these disparities and are being designed predominantly for certain cultures, certain groups, certain economies, and so on, because that's where the money is. And then the detritus of that, those designs end up in other countries where, who may not have the clout to design the systems for their own needs. So I think that's sort of the fundamental tension there uh, to me, that, that the positive is I think the penetration of this is amazing, um, which I think is, is a great thing. Um, it's not sort of a small group of people owning it all. But I think that the design of the system, that's I think comes back to sort of a human-centered point uh, Sean, that you were talking to, and sort of sort of the theories of learning and stuff that Scotty, you were talking to, that are not necessarily going to be taken into account in how these things proliferate and spread across the globe. So you know, it's it's a bit of a mixed bag, as as most things are in life, I guess. Yeah, and one kind of other thing I'd like to kind of add to that, um, especially when we're looking kind of the the human centered side of this, and that, you know, coming from my you know, I am a professor of human systems engineering, and I have been having to deal with and work with a lot of human factors um, people over the years. Um, and the whole idea of, the, of human centeredness is actually really an important concept that I think I want to talk on a little bit more. Sure. Um, because with that, that's actually you're taking the technology, but you're also taking what we know about how humans function. We know if they are um, if things what things will help them, what things will not help them. We understand human strengths, we understand humans' limitations, and there's a lot of research. There are multiple areas of research, uh, applied research out there looking at this, everywhere from um, multiple areas of cognitive psychology to areas of human factors that have pinpointed a lot of these areas, and it's difficult to um, incorporate all of those unless you really have training in them. So when we think about like the human-centered side, 
and how we can integrate that within data science um, and, and, the, and to help build out these algorithms, you have to have that level of training. I mean, that's why just recently we created a new data, um, human-centered data science degree actually here at ASU to start looking at these issues because um, you really have to train the people creating the algorithms with these ideas in mind. But at the same time, you have to also, when building these algorithms and these systems, especially if they're going to be targeting specific groups, you need representatives from those groups to be part of it. Um, so the idea of participatory design, um, where you have um, members of the team who are actually informing the team. And then that way you actually build systems that are more um, open to different audiences and, meet, and help meet their needs. Excellent, excellent point. I think that the, the and, and one of the nice things about these technologies actually that you, I mean, and I think partly uh, uh, sort of a positive fallout of COVID is that we are now much more open to collaborating across, um, you know, through these different, uh, through the internet and so on. So that might actually be something that we can think of participatory design of bringing in people from, from Kenya and from Bangladesh and from you know, uh, whatever in the world they may be. So that's that's awesome. I'm looking at the time here, uh, Sean. Um, so I have one sort of a, a, a question that has been, you know, I've been thinking about a bit over the last few days. And then this morning, in fact, there was an op-ed in the New York Times which talked about CRISPR technology. And one of the sentences that stood out said that, oh, we can go in and edit the DNA just like I edit a word, a, a, you know, a sentence in word. And that got me thinking about this whole idea of data. And I think Yuval Harari has talked about, you know, the dataism where everything becomes data, where you and I become streams of data, whether it's DNA, whether it's our social media work, whether it's this podcast, which now goes out into the world and becomes part of the data stream that we create. Like, what do we gain? I think we know sort of what we gain. What are we losing possibly in if we start thinking of everything as data? And I think, Ryan, you sort of brought it up, which is like, you know, we now have data and you talked about it of, of kids starting in maybe even an elementary school all the way up till they go to work. Like, what are the implications of now seeing everything as data? And I'm just curious. Uh, this is a very big question, of course. Uh, I'm just curious to get actually, uh, you know, maybe start with you, Ryan, and uh, get Sean and Scotty's uh, thoughts on this as well. Well, there's a certain sense in which people think of data as dehumanizing. And I think data can be used in a way that dehumanizes, but I think everything can be dehumanizing. Whether, um, I don't think I would have liked much to have been living in a city in Central Asia during the, the Mongol, uh, the period where the Mongol Empire was expanding. Um, I don't think I would have liked much being a peasant in medieval Europe. Um, <laughs> systems can be dehumanizing. And systems can be humanizing and recognizing people's greatest potential, whether there's technology, modern technologies or not. And I think you can actually see that in the different responses of societies around the world to modern technologies, whether it's a proliferation of exciting new technologies and exciting new possibilities, or whether it's used to monitor and control. So I guess I would say my answer is simply that maybe we have more ability to represent people as data today than we used to, but the human impulses to control and uh, the human impulses to freedom are the same that they've always been. Yeah, um, Ryan, great point. And I'll, I'll just build on that to, to, to chip in my two cents on that was, you know, I, again, 
of all these things are, these are, these are natural human, um, ideas, right. Of controlling and, and potentially exploiting and stuff. So I think for me, one of the pieces that I would bring in is the, the big R word, right. The of regulation, um, and what role does that need to play in a very careful, careful role to not be over, you know, to be putting the finger on the scale, um, or to be restrictive, to stifle like innovations, but also thinking about, you know, as societies. And I think, you know, what we, what we've seen historically play out too, is that the policy and regulation always seems to, you know, fall drastically behind the pace of innovation, um, and use. So a lot of times you get these situations where we can, you know, if you go down, you know, searching, you can find an endless supply of examples of anecdotal examples of things that have, you know, misuses and all that kind of stuff. And, um, all that, but I think moving forward, I think one of the things that we as a global society need to start thinking about is what regulations are needed to, again, going back to that human centered approach, how do we ensure that these innovations, um, give rise to more human agency and not less. Um, and that's sort of like, for me, that's kind of like the big thing moving forward is how do we ensure and work within our collective societies to, to, to really work towards human agency and, and not against it. To add on to this real fast, um, is I, I want to kind of agree with like both of what both of you have already said on this. Um, and I think that if we are able to actually, you know, get data from people from early on when they first start school up to work and maybe even beyond, um, I think that puts a lot of emphasis, yeah, regulation and a lot more emphasis on taking a step back, slowing down a little a bit and thinking about privacy issues think, and thinking about ethical issues um, that I believe that the technology has gotten ahead of. And I'm going to stop my comment right there at that because we could talk for another two hours just on <laughs> that know. topic alone. I know. So I have one quick thought before, Sean, um, you start wrapping up. So one of the, you know, um, I was looking this up recently, but in the 1950s, the Air Force wanted to get the measurements of the average airman. And there was this Lieutenant Daniels who was in charge of that. And he measured 4,000 different people, uh, airmen, uh, no women, no other groups, but only airmen. But basically found that if you went down to more than seven variables, you couldn't find anybody who was the average. Mm. All right. And so he called it sort of the myth of the average. It's a wonderful document. You can actually find it online. And I think what this big data and analytics lets us do is actually customize things for, you know, for too much of our educational system. We have designed it for the average. Most of the things around us have been designed for the average while knowing that there is nobody who meets on all these multiple dimensions is average. So I think that's a possible powerful possibility here in terms of sort of education and identifying talent and nurturing it that I think is is a positive that can emerge out of this. If we take the right decisions, do the human-centered core design, you know, policy making and so on. So anyway, just my two cents on yeah. that. Yeah. Excellent. Excellent. All right. Well, so we've reached we've reached that time where unfortunately I have the bad job of ending this party. Um, as Scotty mentioned, I think we could, Ryan, we could keep you for an indefinite period of time. So so hopefully you'll come back um at some point and we can continue the conversation. Um, but before we let you go, I just wanted to give you an opportunity, Ryan, if if there was anything you want to share with our audience, anything, anything you want to plug, anything you want having going on, anything exciting or otherwise interesting you think our audience would would like to hear, we'd love for you to to take a moment and and plug plug anything you'd like. 
Well, thank you very much. Um, it's been a great honor being here. This was a fun conversation. I really enjoyed it and I learned some things. Um, those of you who would like to kind of uh, continue the conversation, uh, we publish all of our ongoing research results on Twitter still. And um, also at the University of Pennsylvania, we have a new fully online master's in learning analytics. The first cohort's applications are open now. And hey. you can, uh, it, it's designed. Yeah, thank you. It's going to have assignments based on intelligent tutoring systems. It's going to have like creative assignments with critique. And um, it's going to have hopefully a cohort of amazing students from around the world. So I would love to study with folks. I'd love to have opportunities to learn with some of you out there listening to this podcast. Thank you all. This was a really fun and great discussion. Really enjoyed it. Great. Well, thank you. Well, on behalf of all of us, Ryan, thank you again so much um, for joining us today. If you'd like to learn more about uh, Ryan and his work or any of the resources that we've shared today, we'll be sure to drop all of those links and information uh, in the show notes so you can catch up there and can dig in and continue the conversation from myself and the rest of the team here at the Learning Futures Podcast. Thanks again for joining us on another episode of the Learning Futures Podcast. That's a wrap. You've been listening to the Learning Futures Podcast. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information and details. If your podcast player allows for reviews, please leave us a note. We would love to hear from you. Be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you'll never miss an episode. The Learning Futures Podcast is a collaborative production by Enterprise Technology and the Mary Lou Fulton Teachers College at Arizona State University. The show's executive producer is Dr. Sean Leahy, produced by Jacob Snyder with production support by Jennifer Ayala and technical production provided by Jacob Snyder. We hope you have enjoyed this episode.